Luke chapter 21 is what I'll be reading this morning. I'm not going to ask you to stand. This is a bit of a longer text, so I'll read it for us. Just follow along. Luke 21. We'll read verse 5 down through verse 36. Luke 21, beginning in verse 5. It says, While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. They asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilence. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will, be delivered even, uh, up, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot. By the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up. And raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as, you, as soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. For that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Father, we pray, God, that you would give us uh, wisdom as we seek to rightly interpret Scripture, a very difficult and uh, at times confusing text. I just pray that you would guide us this morning in our study of Scripture and that you would teach us and instruct us uh, by this, these words of Jesus that you've given to us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. 
I'm going to warn you today uh, that the text we have in front of us will require some rather tedious study. And so you're going to have to be especially disciplined this morning to prevent your mind from wandering and uh, to stay on track with the sermon. This is one of those passages you read and you might think, what in the world is all of that about? And as such, I have the difficult task today to try to tell you what in the world all of this is about. Let me encourage you this morning to turn to Luke 21 in your Bibles if you have a physical copy in front of you and keep it open there. I know these verses will be up on the screen. They're up there every week, and so sometimes it's easy to just uh, not really look in your Bible, just look up at the screen. I understand that. Uh, But especially today, I think this may be very helpful just to have the whole text on a page in front of you as you follow along. We're going to be spending the next two weeks on these verses because there's really two themes that are present here. Uh, Typically, I like to preach verse by verse uh, in the order that it's written. Uh, We're going to deviate from that just a little bit. Verses 12 through 19, I'm going to kind of pull out and we're going to talk about those next week uh, because that kind of talks about the Christian's response to persecution. Uh, The rest of it we're going to cover this morning. And before we jump into it, let me just say, uh, this is one of the New Testament texts that is often assumed uh, to be all about the end times, the end of the world, the apocalypse, uh, things of that nature. Uh, There's a lot of apocalyptic language here, signs in the sky, famines and wars and so forth. And so many people read this and immediately think that all of this is talking about something in our future, uh, something at the end of time that's going to happen. And if you listen to any televangelist, they'll convince you that it's all going to happen sometime this year. Uh, By the way, they've been saying that for literally decades. Uh, Basically, since television was invented, they've been saying this sort of thing. I mentioned before the famous book in the 80s written, uh, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And, uh, well, here we are, you know, however however many years later. So uh, those types of claims and sensationalist uh, preachers have been out there for a long time. Certainly, there are passages in the New Testament that talk about things that are yet in our future, Uh, especially in the book of Revelation. There's obviously things there that talk about uh, the end of our world, the return of Jesus to earth, judgment day, and so forth. But I don't think that that's what's happening in our text, certainly not in all of it. Uh, You can make an argument, we'll get to that a little bit later, that maybe some of the stuff toward the end, but uh, most of this, I think, was already fulfilled. Uh, As we walk through it, I'll try to show you why I don't think this is talking about the end of the world, but rather the end of the Judaic age and the temple. Uh, We'll begin with verse 5. Remember, this is all uh, taking place. They're they're at the temple, Jesus and his disciples. They've just uh, seen, you know, we talked last week about how uh, Judaism in Jesus' day was a hollow religion, uh, full of corruption. Uh, The Jews really had no care or concern for the poor. They had no love for God or others, but they fastidiously observed all of the outward uh, laws and ceremonies. They were uh, hypocrites, Jesus said, uh, spiritual on the outside, but carnal in their hearts. And so Jesus said that they would receive greater condemnation. And beginning in verse 6, Jesus begins to outline what God's judgment against them is going to look like. So he had just finished uh, talking about the widow who gave her last two coins in the offering box of the temple. You may remember that from last week. And then it says in verse 5, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with the noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when they will not be left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now this sort of strikes me as funny to imagine. Uh, It would be sort of like visiting the Buckingham Palace or some impressive building. And uh, you're walking around with a group touring the place. They're pointing out various 
you know, artwork and designs on the building or, or whatever. And all of a sudden, somebody in the group pipes up and says, uh, all of this is going to be completely destroyed. And that's it. No further explanation. Just it's all coming down. Uh, and so I, I could just imagine the disciples kind of looking at each other like, what did he just say? What is he talking about? And so verse 7, it says, they asked him, teacher, uh, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, Jesus here is going to begin talking about the destruction of this temple. Keep that in mind as we go. Uh, the temple that they are standing right in front of and looking at, okay, that temple was in fact destroyed in AD 70 when the Roman army attacked Jerusalem. This is a very well-attested uh, historical fact. In fact, if you really want to have fun this week, uh, go on YouTube and Google uh, the, the attack of Jerusalem AD 70. You'll find all sorts of uh, like animated videos kind of outlining the, the battle scenes. It's very cool stuff. Anyways, if you go to Jerusalem today, you will not find a temple there anymore. It was destroyed, uh, just like Jesus said that it would be here, and it's never been rebuilt in the nearly 2,000 years since. And so when they ask him the question there in verse 7, when is this going to happen? They are asking uh, about the destruction of the temple. What signs will accompany the destruction of the temple that is right in front of them? And so what Jesus goes on to tell them in the, in the following verses are things that happened in AD 66 to AD 70 when the temple was destroyed. It would be very strange for them to ask Jesus uh, when, you know, he just said the temple is going to be destroyed. If they said, uh, when is this going to happen? What signs are going to precede this? It'd be very strange if Jesus started talking about something completely different that won't happen for thousands of years at the end of the world. That really doesn't fit uh, the context here. And so let's begin in verse 8, which is the start of Jesus' answer to this very specific question. When is the temple going to be destroyed? What signs will precede that? And by the way, if you just think about it, uh, you know, why are they asking this? Well, a lot of these Jews uh, live in Jerusalem, or they at least come down for the feasts. Uh, you wouldn't want to be in town when God sends his judgment against Jerusalem and demolishes the temple. I don't know about you, I wouldn't want to be around when that takes place. So they're asking him for some warning signs. How are we going to know uh, when this is going to happen? And so verse 8, he begins to answer. This is the, everything that follows from here is in response to that question. He says, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. So apparently there were some shortly after uh, Jesus left who claimed to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, ignore them. Uh, verse 9, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid. These things must uh, first take place, but the end will not be at once. So notice what Jesus says. Wars and tumults, uprisings are going to come first. Uh, don't freak out when you hear about these rumors of coming war. You still have some time to get out of town before the destruction begins. He says these things are going to happen, but the end will not be at once. Now the question is the end of what? And again, Many of us just automatically think, oh, the end of the world. Uh, that, that's what he's talking about. Well, no, remember, he's talking about God's judgment coming against Jerusalem and the temple being demolished. And so he says, before that happens, you're going to hear about wars and uprisings against Rome. I'll leave you to look up these historical records of these things. There were indeed many wars uh, throughout, especially the 50s and 60s AD. Uh, wars in Galilee, Judea, and Rome. Roman armies, of course, were stationed throughout the entire Roman Empire. Uh, that spanned from England to India. That entire landmass was under the Roman government. And so during that period of instability, the Roman soldiers stationed throughout those countries slaughtered many groups who attempted to overthrow the occupying Roman government. 
At one point during this period, the historian Josephus writes that it seemed like the whole world was at <clears throat> excuse me. It seemed like the whole world was at war with each other. And by the way, um, notice there the pronouns Jesus uses, and this is just another thing that indicates to me he's not talking about something in our future, uh, because he keeps saying, you are going to see this. He's talking to the people right in front of him. Okay, it would be very strange, again, if Jesus is talking about end-of-time events that are thousands of years in the future. Uh, why would he say, when you hear about this, don't be terrified? Uh, see that you are not led astray by those who claim to be me. A very natural reading of the text seems to indicate that these are instructions being given to these people standing right in front of him. Uh, that these are things that they are going to experience in their lifetime. Verse 10, he says to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Uh, some of these earthquakes are mentioned in the book of Acts. Uh, also in AD 62, we have historical evidence of a massive earthquake recorded in Pompeii. There's other accounts of un an unusual earthquake that hit uh, Jerusalem in particular, which isn't even on a fault line, so it's kind of an unusual thing for that uh, location. In AD 40, there was a famine that hit Babylon. Famine hit Rome in AD 60. These earthquakes, uh, signs in the heavens and so forth are mentioned again at the end of verse 25 and following. We'll look at those a bit more uh, later. Now, beginning in verse 12 down through verse 19, Jesus sort of takes a slight detour. You can see this by looking at the first four words of verse 12. He says, before all of this, but before all this. So now he's talking about something a bit different. Uh, he, he's deviating from talking about Jerusalem and the attack against the temple. Uh, now he's talking about suffering that they will experience before all of this takes place. And so those verses we're going to skip over this morning, verses 12 through 19, they're all about how uh, the disciples are going to experience persecution. We'll talk about those uh, next week. <clears throat> Down to verse 20. Jesus comes back to answering the question of when the temple is going to be destroyed and what signs the people should look for to warn them of this soon-to-come judgment. Verse 20, Jesus says, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Uh, we've talked about this before, how in AD 70, the Roman army under the direction of General Titus, they surrounded Jerusalem and set up a wall, a barricade around the city, so nobody could get in or out, so no food or water uh, could get in or out, and basically starved them out for a period of several months. Uh, finally, after that, they broke through the barricade that they had set up and attacked the city. And during that battle that lasted many weeks, an estimated 1.1 uh, million Jews were killed. That's according, again, to Josephus, the historian uh, who was uh, living at the time. The temple was indeed destroyed, just as Jesus prophesied here. And so the sign that they are to look for uh, is when you start seeing soldiers surrounding Jerusalem. Uh, he says to them, as soon as you see the Romans beginning to encamp around the city, get out. Uh, because they're going to wipe out the inhabitants who remain. Verse 21, he says, then, so when you see that, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city, talking about Jerusalem, depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. Again, this just seems to confirm in my mind that this is not talking about a global period of tribulation. Uh, because, you know, when we, when we apply these to end of the world judgments and say this is going to be a worldwide thing, uh, how does it make any sense that Jesus says you can run to the mountains and escape it? Uh, this is a local judgment against the city of Jerusalem. And here we get at least one of the reasons that Jesus is telling them all of this. Uh, he's warning his followers 
uh, so that they can survive this and not be swept away with the rest of the Jews in this judgment that God was sending against Jerusalem. So he says, if you're living in this region of Judea, when you see the armies coming, run to the mountains, get out of Jerusalem. Uh, don't enter the city for any reason. You don't want to be there when the carnage starts. Verse 22, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Uh, days of vengeance, that's an interesting phrase. Vengeance for what? In other words, what is the reason that God is doing this? Why is he sending this terrible judgment against his people? Uh, if you've been here for the last year or so, uh, hopefully you know the answer to that question. It's come up several times in the book of Luke already, but in case you don't, we're going to pause on the text for a few minutes and go back and trace through several places in the book of Luke in which Jesus explicitly prophesied this judgment and he gives us the reasons for it. So starting in Luke 11, verse 29, it says, When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became, <clears throat> became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So what Jesus is saying here is God had sent the Jews their Messiah, uh, the one who was to deliver them. God's own son was sent to Israel. And instead of listening to his preaching and repenting, they killed him. They rejected the son of God. A few verses later in Luke 11, Jesus says to these religious leaders in Jerusalem, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. They had rejected, mistreated, and killed the prophets throughout the history of the Old Testament, all the way up to uh, John the Baptist, whom they also rejected. And now these Jews in Jerusalem were going to kill Jesus. So he says, God is going to send judgment against this generation. Uh, then in Luke 13, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken. The judgment of God is going to fall on Jerusalem in AD 70 because of their rejection of the prophets and ultimately of Jesus himself. Jesus had repeatedly warned them. He had begged them to repent and avoid this, but they stubbornly refused. Again, Luke 19, when Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem, we're told, he drew near and saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So again, the reason for this coming destruction of the city of Jerusalem is clear. It is because they had rejected and killed the Son of God. 
Despite all of the signs and miracles that he had performed, they refused to believe. Uh, Despite his repeated calls to them to repent, they would not. Uh, One more, Luke 20. This is a parable we covered not too long ago. You might remember it. Verse 9 says, He began to tell the parable to this people. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, and they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. He sent a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. They threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. God is certainly long-suffering. He is patient with us. But there comes a point when that patience runs out and the judgment of God falls. And the Jews in Jerusalem had for centuries rejected and mistreated the prophets that God had sent to them. And finally, God sends his only son and they killed him. They couldn't claim to be innocent. Uh, One of the reasons I just went through all of those texts is to demonstrate to you uh, that they had been warned repeatedly by Jesus of this coming judgment if they rejected him. They had every opportunity to heed these warnings and escape God's wrath. He had even at times begged them to do so, to repent. But in the hardness of their hearts, they refused to listen. In Matthew 27, after Jesus had been arrested, Pilate says to the crowds, What shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. He said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And so with those chilling words, the Jews in Jerusalem sentenced themselves to God's wrath. There can be no doubt why this destruction is coming. Uh, This is judgment from God against this wicked generation that had killed and rejected the Son of God. And so back to our text, verse 23 says, Alas for the women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. Speaking of the Jews, notice the language that's used there. A great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. And so you could take that to mean there are uh, apparently signs all over the earth, earthquakes, tsunamis, famines, wars. Uh, but there's a focal point of all of that in the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus goes on to say to the Jews that uh, they, will be, they will fall by the edge of the sword. They will be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so some of them would be killed, others would be captured, Jerusalem would be demolished. All of this so far seems quite clear and straightforward, and I, th- I, I think you'll agree that all of this appears to be talking about a judgment not at the end of the world, but that was about to happen in their lifetime. Uh, something that is not a global, necessarily, tribulation of the whole earth, but rather 
a specific judgment against the city of Jerusalem and the religious leaders who had rejected and killed Jesus. Now, here is where things get tricky, beginning in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and on earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and waves, a people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, all of that seems to be talking about something very different. Uh, seems to be talking about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, the Son of Man coming in, in a cloud with power and great glory. Your redemption drawing nigh. Uh, this seems to be uh, the end of the world stuff that we've been talking uh, about. The rest of this not necessarily being. Uh, verse 29, though, says, He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in a leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now, if you take kingdom of God to be the final kingdom, uh, the new heavens and new earth uh, that's yet to come, then yes, you could read all of this section as future. Uh, but there's another way to read that. The kingdom of God also, in a sense, began when Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven. That's when Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and reigns over his people. And the reason I bring that up is because of verse 32. And this is where if you, if you take some of those parts and say, well, that's talking about future, uh, end of the world, Jesus returning, then what do you do with verse 32? Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so Jesus says very clearly that everything that he's told them is going to happen in their lifetime. Before this generation has passed away, all of this will take place. Now, <clears throat> there are some who say uh, that this is end of the world stuff. This is about the second coming. And they really have to explain what is Jesus saying here? Uh, how do you sort this out? Uh, there are many who have attempted to do this. And so without being too dogmatic, I'll give you a few views that Christians have taken on this text. First of all, uh, many see it as completely fulfilled in AD 70, 66 to 70 to be exact. Uh, given the fact that the people asked Jesus specifically, when's the temple going to be destroyed? Uh, what signs are going to accompany this? Uh, they would read that all of this is a response to that question. And so therefore, all of it is about AD 70. Add to that the fact that at the end of these prophecies, <clears throat> Jesus says, <clears throat> excuse me, that all will take place before the end of that generation. Uh, and so you've got a pretty solid case there uh, that this is all talking about things in the past. And there have been uh, different ways of describing what, what is being talked about. For instance, the signs in the heavens. Uh, apparently, Halley's Comet flew by around AD 66. I don't know if that's true. I'm not an astronomer. But uh, different people have come up with different things like that, saying, well, maybe this is what it's talking about. And so you could argue that while we may not be familiar with events that took place 2,000 years ago, that it all did happen just like Jesus said. Others would say that some of this is uh, fulfilled in AD 70, and some of it is in our future. And so they would see the transition in verse 24, uh, when it says the time of the Gentiles being fulfilled. Let me read this again. Uh, it says that the Jews, they would fall by the edge of the sword. They would be led captive among the nations. That's all AD 70. Uh, Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, talking about the Roman army uh, coming in and, and demolishing Jerusalem, until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so this view says that everything prior to verse 24 
happened in AD 66 to 70, culminating with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Then the Jews are led captive through all the nations until the, the time of basically God's judgment against the Jews is over, at which point uh, verses 25 and following happen. So you see that they're inserting basically 2,000 years plus in that the end of that verse 24. Okay, so Jesus says the Jews are going to be led captive in AD 70, the Jerusalem be trampled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then after that, verse 25 and following takes place. And so they would see verses 25 to 28, talking about end of the world stuff, Jesus coming back. Uh, everything prior to verse 24 is in uh, the lifetime of these this first generation. And then in verse 29, they see Jesus going back to talking about Jerusalem with the parable of the fig tree, uh, at which point at the end of that, he says, this generation won't pass away till this has taken place. So as confusing as all of that may sound, uh, it's actually a pretty good argument giving the phrasing of verse 24 to read those few verses as uh, future and the rest as <clears throat> events in their lifetime. Others see the text here in Luke 21 about the judgment of AD 70 as sort of a preview of the final period of global tribulation. Okay, so they would say that, yes, Jesus is talking about some things that are about to happen with the fall of Jerusalem. But he's also talking about the end of the world. It's all kind of mixed in. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Give me one second. Uh, normally my voice is uh, more reliable than this. Anyways. So they would see uh, some of this is talking about historical events in their lifetime that have already happened. Some of it is talking about future events. Uh, personally, I don't find this view very persuasive because for one thing, you would have a hard time explaining why Jesus says all of this will happen in this generation if what he really meant is uh, some of this will happen in this generation. Okay, one more possible interpretation is that all of the text has been fulfilled in the first century but not in the way you might think. Okay, this view takes the language of signs in the heavens and roaring of the oceans as a kind of apocalyptic hyperbole, meaning it's not intended to be taken literally, but it is merely a linguistic tool of prophecy that is meant to communicate the anger of God as he sends judgment against Jerusalem. And I have to say, I find this view personally very compelling. Uh, given the pattern of biblical prophecy throughout the rest of the Old and New Testament, for example, in Isaiah 13, God gives Isaiah a prophecy about the coming destruction of Babylon, which happened about uh, 500 years before Jesus. Okay, so this is something that has already taken place in history. God did, in, send, in fact, send judgment against Babylon. And he predicted it in Isaiah 13. It begins with these words, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. So this is all about God sending judgment on Babylon. Okay. Not about a worldwide cataclysmic event. Rather, this is about a judgment against a particular city. Now, look at some of the language that's used throughout this prophecy. Verse 4, for example, says, The sound of tumult is in the mountains of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be ang anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger. 
to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Does that sound familiar? Kind of sounds like signs in the heavens, uh, like what we saw in Luke 21. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant, lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken out of its place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Again, sounds very similar uh, to Luke 21. Uh, Like a hunted gazelle or like sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through. Whoever is caught will will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered, their wives ravished. Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, uh, who have no regard for silver nor delight in gold. Their bows, talking about the Medes, will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. In Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans, will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. Okay, so Isaiah, again, is prophesying specifically about how God is going to stir up the Medes to attack Babylon and destroy the city as judgment from God. And just like Jesus in Luke 21 is prophesying that God is going to stir up the Romans against Jerusalem, and likewise, they will destroy the city as a judgment from God. Now, the question is, uh, when this happened to Babylon, did the sun and moon and stars literally go dark when God sent judgment against Babylon? Or is it possible that we're reading this as a literal phenomena when it's not meant to be read that way? Uh, Couldn't this just be a powerful image to show the fierce anger of God, not meant to be taken literally? A way to describe how the city would be demolished completely. It seems to me that that makes more sense than thinking that this is referring to some sort of solar eclipse or something in the sky literally happening. Here's another example. In Isaiah 34, in this case, God is giving a prophecy to Isaiah about the destruction of Edom. Okay, again, God is going to send judgment against the Edomites. Verse 4 says, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away. The skies roll up like a scroll. I mean, we know that's, that's not literal. Like, we understand that's an image. Okay, all their hosts shall fall. Talk about the stars as leaves fall from a vine, like leaves falling from a fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people that I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of the lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them and young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood. Their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Edom shall be turned into pitch, her soil into sulfur, her land shall become a burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched, its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it lies waste, none shall pass through it forever and ever. Now the question is, is the smoke of Edom still going up? I mean, it says forever, right? Uh, How about back in verse 4, when God says all the hosts of heaven are going to fall, the stars are going to fall, the sky is going to be rolled up like a scroll. If we take these things literally, uh, we're going to be really confused as to what this is talking about. Uh, This is talking about a specific judgment against Edom. 
And we're reading apocalyptic literature here. It's not meant to be a detailed historical account. Uh, Joel, Amos, Ezekiel, all of these prophets use similar language, not to talk about the end of the world, but about God's wrath being poured out against a specific place. And this sort of decreation language about the sun going dark, everything falling apart, this is a descriptive way to talk about the total demise of the city by the time God is through with them. And so I think Jesus is saying to Jerusalem something like, uh, your lights are about to go out, not that this is going to be the end of the space-time continuum. And I'll add at this point, if you read through the book of Revelation, you really have to view a lot of the symbolism there in this way. You can't take it all literally or you're you're going to just be very confused. For example, when we read that Jesus is going to come with a sword coming out of his mouth, uh, do we take that literally as if a sword is going to be a shooting out of Jesus' mouth? Of course not. Uh, isn't it more reasonable to read that as a poetic description of the fact that Jesus is going to speak and with a word his enemies will be slaughtered? It's just a, a, an apocalyptic, hyperbolic way of saying it. Now, we're used to doing this with poetry. Uh, it's something about uh, modern American Western, the way that we read things. We do this with poetry. We understand uh, in Psalm 23, when, Je when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, that he's not claiming to be a sheep. Uh, when David said that God leads him beside still waters and he makes him lie down in green pastures, we're not picturing David laying out in a field somewhere like an animal. Of course not. We understand how poetry works, that this is just a way of saying God guides me, he, he, uh, he supplies my needs, he takes care of me, he protects me like a shepherd protects a sheep. And so we're used to viewing things in poetic language as not to be taken literally. Again, it would be silly to do so. And I think we need to start reading apocalyptic literature in the same way. Uh, all of this to say, basically, that my personal opinion of Luke 21 is that we have to take what Jesus says in verse 32 at face value. All of this happened in the lifetime of those people standing in front of him. He said all of it would happen before this generation passes away. And I believe it all did happen. When the Romans attacked Jerusalem, they tore down the temple. They slaughtered possibly over a million Jews. And I think the language here of the earth-shaking signs in the heaven is decreation language, apocalyptic, uh, not necessarily meant to be taken literally as if the sun's going to go dark. Uh, rather, I think, is a form of literature to speak about the destruction and carnage. It sounds weird to us, but it's actually very common in biblical prophecy. If you want a modern example of this sort of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it trash talk, uh, right? Think of high schoolers that say one, one high school kid says to another uh, right before a football game or something, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to mop the floor with you guys. Uh, we all understand what that means. It doesn't mean we're literally going to mop the floor with you. It means we're going to beat you really bad. Okay. That's sort of what's happening. I think in a lot of this uh, prophecy, it's a, it's a, a hyperbolic way of saying uh, this is going to be total destruction and carnage. As for Jesus coming on the clouds, uh, that could be referring to the future when he returns to earth, or it could be referring to Jesus coming in judgment against Jerusalem. Uh, and rather than explore all of the reasons why you could take it one way or the other, let me just read uh, one passage that I think is relevant to this. Over in Matthew 26, Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest. Uh, he's accusing Jesus of all sorts of things. And it says in verse 63, Jesus remains silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus says to Caiaphas, to the high priest living at that time, you're going to see me 
coming on the clouds of heaven. And so this seems to fit with the view that says that this is talking not necessarily about Jesus' return at the end of time, but rather Jesus' return to take uh, to destroy Jerusalem in judgment. And so Jesus is saying again to the high priest who's about to condemn him, uh, you're going to see me again. I may be on trial before you today, but it won't be too long before I come to you, and uh, I'll be judging you then. Uh, let's finish up the text. Verse 34, Jesus closes with a few words of application for his listeners. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. So he tells them, uh, be alert, pay attention, be prayerful. Remember what I've told you so that you can escape this judgment that is about to come. Now, I've said this a few times uh, that I'm not exactly sure how to understand necessarily every part of this. Uh, I, I hold open the, the um, possibility that some of it may be referring to end times events, uh, but certainly much of it is talking about events in their lifetime. As I say often with biblical prophecy, these portions of scripture are really tricky to sort out all of the details uh, with certainty. And so it would be foolish for any one of us to be dogmatic about every possible detail as if we have everything figured out, especially since we're living 2,000 years after some of these events took place. Uh, there aren't really enough writings that have survived that time period to tell us about everything that happened. And so as with many prophecies, I think it's wise for us to allow some space for good Christians to come to slightly different conclusions on how to interpret these texts. What we do know for certain is at least much of this is talking about a judgment that was soon to come. Uh, about 40 years after Jesus uttered these words, Jerusalem faced the wrath and judgment of God. And so rather than simply speculating about things that we may not be able to say for sure, uh, whether they've been fulfilled or not, let's instead draw a few points of application from what we do know. Number one, this text shows Jesus to be a true prophet. His words here were fulfilled, even though nobody at the time could have imagined such a thing. This huge temple in front of them, it had taken 50 years to construct. None of them could have imagined it being reduced to a pile of rubble within their lifetime. But Jesus knew that it would. And he gave them not only what would happen, but even the time frame in which it would happen. His prophecy of this event is, in fact, one of the proofs that the early church used to show the world that he was speaking truly the words of God. Uh, second takeaway from this is that God is sovereign over the affairs of this world. Uh, even when things seem chaotic, he is accomplishing his purpose. In this case, he was judging Israel. He was bringing about the end of the Judaic age. And in so doing, by destroying the temple, God was showing us that it's no longer needed. As New Testament, as the New Testament teaches us, we are now the temple of God. Instead of coming to a building uh, to meet with God like the Jews did, uh, the Holy Spirit now indwells each one of us. And so those symbols are done. The reality is now here. Uh, there's no more need to sacrifice animals as an atonement for sin because Jesus was the ultimate Lamb of God who was sacrificed for all of our sins. And so as with all of the forms and symbols of temple worship, They've been fulfilled in Christ. A third application we should take from this is that God's wrath is something to be feared. We dare not presume on grace indefinitely. God is patient, he is merciful, but there does come a point when the fire of God's judgment falls. 
Second Corinthians seventeen thirty six says, "You shall fear the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt with great power and with an outstretched arm. You shall bow yourselves to Him, and to Him you shall sacrifice." Uh, God is saying to those who had witnessed uh, the plagues against Egypt, all that God did there in the book of Exodus, He says, "Consider this power that I have, and fear Me." And likewise, we ought to look back on the judgment of God in. AD 70 against Jerusalem and have a healthy fear of God. Psalm 33 verse 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Number four, God's judgment in time is merely a whisper of the judgment that awaits in eternity. This is an uncomfortable truth for me to tell you and probably an equally uncomfortable truth for you to hear, but the Bible makes clear the reality of hell. Those who refuse the offer of the gospel to have their sins forgiven, these will have their sins judged eternally, and they will experience the full wrath of God against them. Second Corinthians 1 says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel, of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. There is coming a day when Jesus will return to earth and all the living and dead will stand before him. And on that day, you don't want to be among those who have not obeyed the gospel those who have not placed their faith in Jesus and given their lives to his service. As Hebrews 10 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in case you wonder if God is serious when he warns us about his judgment eternally in hell, look at Jerusalem in AD 70. It's a warning to us that we ought to take God's wrath seriously. Don't be flippant about disobeying and disrespecting a holy God. Number five, not only do we see here the wrath of God, that we are to fear, but we also see the mercy and patience of God for which we ought to be eternally thankful. God was extremely patient even with these Jews. Jesus had warned them repeatedly that this was coming and how they could escape it. Uh, And although they still killed Jesus, even after that, God extended opportunities to them to repent and be forgiven. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching. This is about two months after Uh, These Jews in Jerusalem had had killed Jesus. He's preaching to them, and at the end of his sermon to these very people, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Uh, They realize what they've done, that they crucified their Messiah. And as the panic of this reality hits them, they ask, What shall we do? Verse 38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Even after they killed Jesus, they are given the opportunity to save themselves from the coming judgment. Verse 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day 
about 3,000 souls. Incredible grace. Even if you were in the crowd shouting, crucify him, you can still be forgiven. Repent, be baptized, start a life of following Jesus, and you will be spared from God's wrath. And what's true of Jews, uh, of the Jews here in Jerusalem, is true of each one of us individually. We are all sinners deserving the judgment of God. We have all violated God's laws, and as a holy God, he must punish evil. But this same mercy and grace that was extended to those who killed Jesus is also extended to us. Jesus took our sins on himself. He bore the wrath of God on the cross so that we would have the opportunity to, to be forgiven. And so just like the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, when we make the decision to repent of our sins and to follow Christ, we are forgiven of all of our sins. We'll never face God's eternal judgment. His wrath has been fully satisfied because of Jesus' substitutionary death for us. And we get to walk in the light of God's favor. So undeserving, yet this is the grace of God towards us. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning and you've been forgiven of all your sins, uh, let's take a few minutes right now just to thank God for his mercy that he's extended to sinners like us.